Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Hello, this is Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thank you so much for listening. And welcome to season three of the Organic Wine Podcast. Wow. I get so many benefits out of doing this podcast, not the least of which is the joy of getting to have thoughtful conversations with brilliant people who can inspire and teach all of us. In fact, doing this podcast has highlighted for me just how rare it is in the rest of life to sit down with someone and have a meeting of the minds, to ask them about their life, their perspectives, and their areas of expertise, and to give them the time and attention to let them be thorough in answering my questions. Listening to people, giving them the respect of your attention, attempting to see the world through their eyes, this to me is the soul of compassion and may be a revolutionary act. At the very least, I guarantee that it has the potential to revolutionize your own heart and mind. The goal I have for this podcast is to give you hope. That may sound strange for a wine podcast, but I guess this is not a normal wine podcast. I want each episode to be an example, despite whatever may be going on in the world, of folks who are doing beautiful work with wine. I'm extremely grateful to all the incredible people who have given of their time and expertise to be part of this podcast, not only for what I've learned, but also because they've given me an example of something that does not originate from a place of ignorance, greed, or selfishness. That kind of work is brave, it's difficult, it's inspiring, and it's vitally important. I want to honor that, and I want all of us who care about this kind of work to know that we're not alone in it. So don't stop doing it, don't stop caring, and thank you. My guest for this episode is Martin Bernal Hafner. Martin is doing some beautiful and hard work in Mendocino County for Alta Orsa on a vineyard that was probably planted by someone who was the love child of Michelangelo and a sadist. If that analogy doesn't make sense, what I'm trying to say is that this vineyard looks like the Sistine Chapel, but farming it could be a form of torture. Martin may be the perfect guy for such a difficult job. He's humble and unassuming, thorough and careful, with kindness and patience to boot. And maybe that's why you haven't heard of him or Alta Orsa. But that, and the kind of farming he's doing, despite Herculean challenges, are exactly why I wanted to talk to him for the podcast. But even more than that, the Alta Orsa estate vineyard is something special. Halfway up a mountain, at the end of what looks and drives like a dirt fire service road, you come upon what could be an old Italian villa if it was set in Middle Earth. When the gate opens and you pass through the weathered stone entry, it's like going through a fairy door into another realm. Vineyard rows that have never been tilled in 30 years twist and turn over to the steep contours of the mountainside so closely planted that they must be tended entirely by hand, and the wine that flows from them is dusky, rich, and complex. I'm not saying Martin has pointy ears, but there is something magical about this place that I hope you get to taste. And if you get a chance to visit, don't be surprised if you think you see something twinkling out of the corner of your eye that disappears into the shadows when you turn to look. Enjoy. Thank you, Martin. Thank you for do- joining me. Welcome. Thank you, Adam. Thanks for having me. Hey, so um, can you tell me where you are right now and what you're, what you're doing? Absolutely. Yeah. So as I mentioned before, school's out, so uh, I had to take care of my daughter today. So today I'm at one of my wife's work, um, which is actually her family's uh, winery here in Alexander Valley. 
So I'm at oh. Hafner Vineyard um, because my daughter's sleeping with grandparents uh, while I do this interview. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Nice. Are you in, it sounds a, a little like you might be in a winery space, are you? Exactly. Yeah. You might hear some clinking of bottles because they're labeling, repacking some, uh, some wine downstairs. So I'm in the, um, her dad, Park Hafner, he's the winemaker. I'm in his office right now and they're, um, yeah, doing all the work downstairs. Well, nice. Uh, and you, so, but that's not where you normally work. Where, where do you normally work? What's the, what's your, yeah, what's your so job? This is not my, yeah, not my daily <laughs> task uh, to sit here. No, I work at Alta Orsa. So our, our winery up in Hopland. Uh, so many of you know, probably don't know, uh, Hopland's in Southern Mendocino County, almost right at the border with Sonoma County. Um, so it's kind of the southernmost area uh, or town in Mendocino County. It's right along 101, uh, about two hours north of San Francisco. It's sort of like right where the 101 becomes like a street instead of a highway. Basically. Exactly. It's a, <laughs> in Hopland, it's a one-lane road. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like once you, once the once the 101 stops being the the 101, you've arrived. <laughs> exactly. When you go 35 miles an hour at, on 101. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it uh, sounds like it should be more of a a place. For beer with a name like hopland well but, yeah um, this this whole area you know there's a lot of hops uh back in the day are there still oh uh, back there's in the still day, okay. some back in the day um you know that's where it got its name that's awesome it's it's also uh so like hippieville right i mean if i'm gonna be if i use the vernacular <laughs> yes I mean, it's sort of <laughs> Definitely like, some of that. I mean, there, it's part of the Green Triangle. Awesome. And this, right. you know, Humboldt okay. and Trinity. So there's Got definitely it. a lot of, uh, you know, cannabis growing, especially nowadays. Um, but it's also great for grape growing. Uh, so, you know, the, the wine scene is fairly big uh, also in the area. Yeah. I mean, I, what I meant by that was, yes, the Green Triangle, but also I think the values um, of you know, environmental values, caring about the land, caring about the earth, conservation, things, you know, like that. Oh, uh, <laughs> and, and <laughs> I mean, because, you know, you arrive in Hopland and you start seeing, you know, organic vineyard signs everywhere. Um, I mean, Bonterra is there, you know, but yeah, there's lots there. of other places. Yeah. Fe- yeah. And, uh, you know, you're surrounded by uh, or you're, you're next door to to. Terrasavia, exactly. Right. And Campavita, I think they do biodynamics. Right. So absolutely. I think Mendocino has become sort of a hub for organic, uh, you know, winemaking and uh, grape growing. So yeah, there's a ton of different uh, vineyards that are, that's how they started. And, you know, they're pioneers um, in that area from a long time ago, yeah. I think starting, you know, 70s or 80s. Um, yeah. The Dolans and so yeah, it's a great area to be in. Uh, and I guess also the Topelis, which was the prior iteration of uh, Alta Orsa, you know, they've been farming since the late 80s, our property itself. Um, you know, not very well known because we're so small, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, a, and, and go ahead, sorry. Oh, no, yeah. I, I was going to say it's a, sort of a magical place that, you know, not many people have heard of Mendocino County. Um, but yeah, it's a great resource if you want to look into, you know, organic wineries and many cool. organic agriculture, really. There's a ton of, of cool projects happening. Yeah, I couldn't believe actually how just beautiful the landscape is there in general. I mean, just driving around, it's like the steep, windy mountain roads, but it feels like you're in 
classical California, you know, Savannah style with like big open hillsides dotted with oak trees, but the hillsides are just extreme, you know, and then you get, and then you get, you know, there's all these gorges and it's just, it's stunning. I mean, it's really just like a beautiful, beautiful landscape. It it never gets old. Trust me. I I drive it every day and the views from the winery, it it never quite gets old. It's some, it's pretty, it's a really magical place. Well, so before we get into Alta Orso, you know, formerly Topel, can, can you talk a little bit about how your path led you there? Like, where did you come from? What did, what did, you know, what was your training and experience that brought you there? Yeah. So my journey through wine, it started, uh, so as many of us in the industry as a second career. So I was not trained in winemaking. Uh, I was more on the business side. Um, so, um, I went to Boston college and there I met my wife. Um, so my interest in wine started there. Um, it was at first not direct, you know, we would did join a little tasting club at Boston college, but it was nothing too serious. Um, then we left uh, when we graduated, went to New York and worked there for two years. And we didn't quite connect necessarily. We didn't see ourselves, um, continuing our careers at the times. And she thought, uh, maybe going back to the family business, but first, um, you know, doing it outside the family business. So uh, she wanted to uh, at least do a harvest. So we both went to France um, to do our first harvest. And, you know, she was fortunate. We were fortunate enough that her family's hosted French interns for the last 30 plus years um, from a a university called Pierpont. And so many of the interns are now winemakers are in agriculture. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of great connections that we had. And uh, Guillaume, which I believe he was the intern in 1995, was uh, the director of winemaking at Chapoutier. Um, So we, yeah, he was one of the, you know, he really had a special time here in California. So he always felt like he owed something to uh, Park and, and the Hafner family. And so he hosted us. We lived with his family like he did uh, in 1995, I think, when Kate was about the same age as his daughters were at the time. Wow. Um, So, yeah, it was was a great opportunity for us because it it usually can be difficult to uh, do an internship in France uh, coming from the U.S. But he really opened up the doors for us to explore this wine world, which I didn't know. You know, when, when looking back at that first harvest, I didn't really know much about even fermentation you know when people talk (laughs) about wine aging in barrel for two years i thought fermentation may take two years Uh, (laughs) it's one of those i I was pretty ignorant about the whole process to be honest (laughs) you probably still get that question i get that question all the time like how long does how many years does it take to ferment wine (laughs) (laughs) exactly or some version of that you know exactly and when i tell people you know pinot noir it's from it goes from grapes to wine in two weeks and people are like what (laughs) <laughs> it's like no it, it happens you get wine that fast it's just the aging process it's a, it's a different thing yeah um so yeah it was really a, quite an, an exciting experience for us uh, learning from zero you know how to operate pumps uh managing fermentations uh the language itself but it was such an exper- yeah. incredible experience from a cultural and community perspective um you know i love the the wine culture in general, it's very international. So we had other interns or stagiaires uh, from, you know, of course there are some French ones, but there's 
there are people from South Africa, New Zealand, uh, Australia, and really all over the world. And that kind of worldly community really attracted me. Uh, I kind of spoke to a lot of the valleys that I wanted to have in a career. Um, Why was that? Well, you know, so I grew up originally in Colombia, so I always felt a little bit kind of part of the international community. Um, and I always yeah. thought, oh, I'm going to use my first language, you know, now living in the U.S. as part of my career. And I wanted to have kind of international exposure because I always felt like comfortable and in, around international people um, and kind of yearned for that multicultural uh, interaction. But, you know, in my business world, I never really my career, I didn't really get to use it very much. Mm. Uh, so that was something that uh, really spoke to me, but also the agricultural side. Uh, so that's something that I've always really enjoyed as well. So it, it, was, it was a confluence, um, the agricultural part. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would probably have to go back to my grandfather. I spent a lot of time um, growing up uh, with my grandparents and he, you know, he was a retired Air Force uh, pilot. But he loved gardening. Um, he, they had, you know, big properties um, with a lot of kind of fruit trees. So he was always very much, uh, you know, in his retirement uh, into agriculture. Um, and so just spending a lot of time with him, it just really spoke to me. Uh, I loved being, that was, you know, what I loved doing when I was growing up mm. uh, as a little kid. On the weekends, we would go off to our um, little pro- property outside of Bogota and plant fruit trees and, take care of them. So that, that was always kind of in my heart. Granted, you know, I, I lived in cities for most of my life. Um, yeah. I really, I enjoyed that part. Um, yeah. Nice. Yeah, no, I, I love that. That sounds maybe the living in the city helps make it, uh, make, you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder, so to speak Absolutely. Um, for, for the agriculture. <laughs> In some cases, as long as you have some exposure to it, if you none, you you don't even know what you're missing, basically. Exactly. Um, um, yeah, I mean that's I love that. I mean that's part of why I, what I'm trying to do is sort of put a bring bring the agriculture to an urban center so that you know we, people can get that exposure. I love exposure. that. Yeah, no, you definitely need that exposure for everyone. You know, I was listening to your most recent podcast, and you you mentioned. Uh, or your uh, guest mentioned um, as a service. Uh, not, uh, yes. The mil- not military service, but a uh, kind of yeah, a Yeah, yeah. And like I was like, public- yeah, public service. Uh, and almost like the Peace Corps, but for agriculture. Something yes. like that. Nice. I was like, that would be genius because most people have no idea where their food comes from, what it takes to grow it. Um, and the real cost, you know, we're such, we're used to such cheap food. Um, right and you know that has its consequences um yeah and we don't you know we think of fruit being really to... expensive or going to farmers market and be like oh my god this is so expensive but it, at the end of the day you know these farmers aren't really making any money it's just you know the food's supposed to be expensive yeah yeah we're used to cheap food and uh we're getting what we're paying for yeah, exactly basically. um well so and and wh- when did the job at uh at where you currently are, arrive in your life. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I got distracted. Uh, sorry. That's <laughs> right. That's, memory lane. Yeah. So memory lane. <laughs> so um, basically when we went to France, um, I really fell in love with the manual labor, the culture, uh, the community mm. around it. Um, and then we continued, we continued traveling around Europe. We did an olive harvest in 
Italy. Um, we had some friends that had a little uh, operation, you know, so we harvested olives for three days, made some, made some olive oil. And then after that, they recommended that we go to Argentina. They thought the Argentinian wine scene was interesting. So we reached out some contacts there through them. And so ended up at Vinacobos uh, in Mendoza. Uh, so we basically went down for the Southern Hemisphere harvest um, and just further really fell in love with the wine uh, <laughs> wine scene. Uh, you know, it's completely different. Uh, Europe and, and of course, like Chapoutier was a little bit more grounded in tradition. They've been around for a long time. Um, and it was kind of nice to see it in from a different perspective, a little bit more new world winemaking, uh, more modern facilities, even though, I mean, Chapoutier, you know, has incredible facilities, but they still, they're so grounded on tradition. Um, but in Jacobo's, right. uh, you know, they were making some amazing Malbecs and great Chardonnays. It was just a different kind of mentality, but um, both, you know, uh, were incredible experiences that really closed the deal on me on changing my career. So, um, and then I connected with, so Vinacobos is owned by Paul Hobbs, the American winemaker. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, exactly. So he really cut his teeth, I would say almost in Argentina, helping Gatana set up. Uh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, his operate, well, not setting it up, but, um, so he, he worked a lot with Gatana in, in improving, I, I believe the quality uh, of his production down there. Got it. Like doing upgrades and upgrades and some consulting. Uh, I don't know the exact extent, but so Paul is very well known in Argentina. Okay. Yeah. So he, he, he made definitely a name for himself there and he basically spends half the year in Argentina and half the year in the U S or around his projects around the world. Um, he was really an inspiring figure for me in the sense that he's a very vineyard focused guy. So in yeah. the cellar, we only see him during harvest, um, kind of at the end of the day after he's visited all the vineyards um, and managed everything. You know, he'll taste through all the fermentations, but he was really focused on the vineyards. Uh, and that was sort of one of the impressive parts of Argentina. And the fun thing about going in early is because the first part, we did spend a few days going out to the vineyards, seeing, you know, the different uh, viticultural practices, irrigation and, and different things that they did. Uh, that was great exposure, you know, coming from a biodynamic hillside farmed, uh, you know, wine region, which is kind of like our meat and, and, you know, those Rhone Hills to yeah. desert farming, um, right on the other side of the Andes where they do flood irrigation because they have enormous amounts of water that come from, uh, the Andes. Uh, so it was pretty wild. It was, it was a really wild, fun experience. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> So you uh, you came back with a with a, a a fire in your belly for changing your career. Uh, did you just drop out of what you? I, mean, I guess you'd already dropped out if you'd spent you know a year abroad doing these various stages. Exactly. Um, yeah. So I yeah I think once <laughs> in France I decided I was not gonna go back uh, into business. <laughs> Uh, you know, it, it wasn't a bad gig being, you know, in the finance world, but it didn't, I couldn't see myself doing it in the future. Um, you know, I worked with some great people, learned a lot of great things, but it wasn't a career for me. Uh, it didn't really speak to what I wanted to do with my life. Um, so coming back, you know, I, I knew I was not going to go back into uh, finance. So uh, I, you know, fortunately connected with Paul in Argentina 
And when I came back, uh, I was asked, you know, if I could continue here in his uh, Sebastopol operation. So I first started at Crossbarn, which is, um, oh yeah, yeah, you know, it's uh, his more affordable tier of wines and also yep. custom crush facilities. So that was a really exciting place to be uh, for a number of reasons. So, you know, I started in the cellar, but also um, I was able to uh, get into the lab, uh, learn a ton of kind of on the chemistry side, but also in the cellar practices um, and working with custom crush clients. I also got to see, you know, work with a lot of different winemakers that were inspiration. Um, in many different ways. Uh, so probably a lot of different, a lot of different types of wine as well, different winemaking styles and yeah, a lot of different styles, approaches to winemaking, uh, different regions. So that was really exciting for me. It was a great exposure. Um, so yeah, it was a great place to start. And then, uh, after about, I believe, I think it was three years of Crossbar I moved on to Paul Hobbs, which, you know, I had a lot of interactions going back and forth between both, um, the whole time. But um, basically, I took over kind of the enology department at one point and managed um, all the analysis for basically both for the whole company. Um, wow. Paul Hobbs. Yeah, for Paul Hobbs yeah. and for Crossbarn. Wow. That's great experience. Yeah, no, it was really exciting. But honestly, the fun part was just being exposed to so many different wines and winemaking uh, stuff. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming somewhere along the way you wanted to graduate to being your own winemaker and put into practice all of the things that you'd been absorbing, uh, with your own ideas. And, uh, and here you are. Exactly. So, yeah, no. So, you know, (laughs) as many of us in the wine industry, I think we all kind of dream about making our own wine, um, being at Paul Hobbs is a great experience from this, in the sense that I, you know, I learned to make great wines, but I was also just in production. So um, being as it wasn't a huge winery, uh, we were making I think maybe total about fifty to seventy thousand cases during my time there. But I was just uh, you know involved in the production. I saw very little of the vineyard. Uh, I probably saw it more as an intern of vineyards. Um, so I really was itching to kind of get out into the vineyard, learn that aspect of the bit, um, you know, of the business and also um, sales. I, we, when we put the wine in the truck after bottling it, I had no idea who drank our wine. So I didn't have any interactions <laughs> with any of our customers. So it was this huge disconnect on the great, you know, on the grape growing and on the consumer side that was made it hard for me to understand you know, the true implications of what we were doing. Okay. Um, and this opportunity just arose. Uh, and so um, basically, what? sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. What, what was the opportunity? I mean, what sold you on saying yes to where you currently are? So, yeah, basically uh, it was a con- connection through a mutual friend and um, Roger, uh, who is, Kind of the primary owner partner in uh Orson Alto Orso had just purchased Topel Winery. So the Topel family had ran this operation for many, many years, but they uh Mark, uh who was the winemaker, um had some health issues and they wanted to move on, basically kind of retire. That their children, you know, their kids did not want to be involved in the business. So Roger was really looking for a partner uh to run the operation. Um when I, 
you know, heard about the possibility. I was intrigued. I didn't feel like, well, I didn't really know until I visited. Uh, I saw this property, kind of heard the, a little bit of the history, tasted some of the wines, and it was just, it seemed like an amazing opportunity uh, to do something on my own. You know, it was the size, exactly the size that I wanted wanted to start with. So um, we were making under a thousand cases, um, organically farmed vineyard where I would have my hands in the grape growing, the winemaking and the sales. So that was kind of Roger's proposal to kind of enter into this partnership where I would be doing it all. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's because he, partner. (laughs) yeah, he was not, uh, you know, he loves wine, but he didn't have the experience in any of those fields. Uh, So that's kind of where I came in. And it was, yeah, I knew it was going to be incredible, incredibly challenging. It's going to be quite a journey, um, but I was ready for it after being, you know, working in the industry for nearly eight years and a Paul Hobbs for eight years, uh, for seven years, I was ready wow. for something new uh, where oh, I wanted incredible. to, yeah, just take on, tackle on a new challenge. Yeah. It sounds like an incredible opportunity. And, and uh, I mean, did you have the experience that I had? seeing the place for the first time and did you have any i mean what was that like when you showed up for the first time i mean i get i I imagine you might be a little more jaded than me in terms of seeing beautiful vineyards but was there (laughs) what what was your impression when you first showed up absolutely well i remember yeah it was a rainy winter day um (laughs) nice a little bit like today actually but (laughs) no i mean like i said that property never gets old and it, it is magical even, you know, years after being there. Um, so it was just kind of stunning driving up the road. Um, you know, I think I was shocked by the dirt road at first and I wasn't <laughs> quite sure if I was going to the right place. Um, right. but after those two miles of dirt road, uh, getting to the gate, I was like, okay, I survived the road. Now this is the, this is the reward. Uh, it was amazing. You know, there are a lot of challenges that I saw right away from the kind of on the infrastructure side, on the vineyard side, the way the way the vineyards planted. So I definitely it was a little bit scary just seeing the challenges that were lay ahead. Um, but at the same time, that's that's kind of what I was looking for is something where it wasn't completely set up and I could have an influence over the future of this, you know, really special vineyard. Yeah. It is really special. And I, I should have started by, or or somewhere near the beginning, given some disclosure to say, um, you know, I, I know about this vineyard because uh, it's the source of one of our wines that we we put we put out uh, through Centralis. And uh, we, I mean, the vineyard was a big reason for that. And the farming that you do is, the, you know, the main reason for that. I mean, it's the reason it opened the door to us trying your wines and realizing there was so much potential and so much you know, deliciousness there. Um, so when I came up to visit, I, you know, it was like that two mile road is just like, uh, you know, you, you're taking a journey like time, you know, out of space and time in a way, like I came during the fires of 2019. Was it 20? Yeah. Wait, I think it was. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, the air was full of smoke and somehow that place made, it even seemed sort of sexy and beautiful and mystical <laughs> with, with the smoke hanging in the air and like the red sun <laughs> blotted exactly. out, <laughs> blotted out in the sky. Um, I mean, just like, 
you know, it's all the, it's, it's gorgeous as you wind up through and, and you do, you arrive after two miles of just like the sort of rutted out dirt road winding up through the, up the mountainside. And, it, you know, it is a place that I, I often describe it as like it, the person who created that place must have not known anything about farming grapes um, because they would have made it so much easier on themselves if they had done, <laughs> if they had done it differently. But that's part of it. I mean, I imagine when you showed up, you were looking at it with those kind of eyes of like, Oh my God, the work involved here. Um, but when I showed up, it was like, well, somebody else has to do the work. This is just stunningly <laughs> gorgeous. <laughs> you know, like I get to appreciate the, the raw beauty of it and the yeah, magic yeah. of it. It is like, ex- exactly. I mean, it was that surprise of being like, "Oh, this is actually hand farmed." The you know, there is that kind of realization. I was like, "Ooh, I don't know how they've done this for thirty years, but someone's done it, so it's possible." Um, yeah. So, and well, let's just let's talk about what some like what are the some of the interesting things about it. I I remember. Well, I'll just stay like I. One of the first things I wanted to do was walk into the vineyard because you walk in and the vines are so close to you that like I could reach out my arms and they extended beyond the rows because they're planted that narrowly. <laughs> they're like the vineyard rows are like it's like a three by four spacing. Is that right? Something. Like uh, that? So it's, it's around I mean, three and a half by five. Okay. Uh, all right. Yeah. So <laughs> block three, which is the one right by the winery. Yeah. That's, it's, I think it's supposed to be four and a half by five, but I've measured it many times. Um, <laughs> I like they got it. <laughs> because I'm trying to think, okay, what can I fit through this row? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nothing. Nothing. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so that so was one of the first. You guys don't have a, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, you no, don't, go I, I was just going to say, you guys don't have a tractor, right? This is we like. We don't have a tractor. Yeah. So we basically. And- barely use any machinery. So we don't have an in-house tractor. Uh, we do borrow a tractor exclusively during harvest to basically haul the grapes from sort of the, you know, the roads, vineyard roads to the winery. So that's the and only time is... the vineyard sees uh, any big machinery. Right. And it's about 20 acres. Is that right? Well, so 20 acres is sort of the fenced in area. The uh, the actual okay. vineyard uh, would be layout, less. I would say about 12 and we're currently okay. farming about 10. Got it. And and this is essentially mountainside vineyard. So it's and the and the rows sort of follow these contours and it's not one aspect i mean there's a lot of different aspects throughout the vineyard right exactly um, so kind I of mean, going back to you know hopland so you arrive at hopland and you take yeah. uh duncan springs road and it was tiny little dirt road and you climb about a thousand feet um the lowest elevation in our vineyard it believes around 1100 feet and sort of the top side is around 1400 feet of elevation so in those uh let's say 10 acres that we have planted 12 acres that we have planted you find different soil types, different exposures, uh, different grades. Um, so it's an incredibly diverse vineyard in that sense. Um, and, you know, because of that, there's microclimates, there's different growth patterns. Um, mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's it's like farming 10 different vineyards at the end of the day. Right. <laughs> right. Oh, that sounds like a joy. Um. <laughs> it is. <laughs> but also, I mean, the other thing, you, I mean, literally the, the mountain, the, the forest begins where the, where the vineyard ends. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. just outside the fence and some, some inside the fence um, and goes right up to the top of, of, 
uh, what is it? Duarte Peak? Uh, Duncan Peak. Duncan Peak. Sorry. Um, exactly. It's there with a D, and there was a U in there. <laughs> <laughs> and it's pretty wild. It's a pretty wild and woolly place. And you have incredible views. I mean, it's like sweeping. It's like, I don't know if you've ever been to Montebello uh, in Santa Cruz, um, but it's sort of like being at Montebello and looking over Silicon Valley. That's the kind of views that you get from up there, uh, except it's not, you know, you don't see Apple, you see Hopland. <laughs> you see Hopland, yeah, exactly. No, yeah, um, the views are absolutely amazing. Um, we are almost the last strawberry uh, on Duncan Springs Road. And yeah, like you said, it's a pretty wild place. Uh, there's really nothing around us except forests. Um, you know, the steep slopes have kept it pretty much undeveloped aside from, you know, a few residences. And there is actually another vineyard uh, right behind us. Um, but that's about it uh, up on the mountain. It's really sort of a pristine uh, landscape. So we have around 160 acres that encompass the property at the end of the day. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So we're, we go halfway up Duncan Peak, and there's some magical places down there. Um, so I don't think we had the chance to take you uh, to the springs uh, that are along sort of the canyon uh, there. There's a lot of no, natural I, springs. I did I did hike up to almost the top of uh, Duncan Peak, uh, just through the woods and found all kinds of... I mean, it's gorgeous. <laughs> I, I, I can just spend whatever. I, you know, I, yeah. I would prefer to get... I try to get lost, honestly, when I go. I can't <laughs> be like, just so I have an excuse to stay out and not come back. Um, but it was incredible. I mean, it was like, yeah. I, I mean, and, and just some of the wildlife that you see, I remember... You know, I've been in California for a while and I've seen many a, a covey of quail and, you know, you're, you're used to like you see the mama quail run and then or like the lead quail and then there's like, you know, a dozen quail run across. So you sort of wait. And I remember seeing like the first quail sort of run out from the, like a little brush area uh, around like the reservoir area yeah. right, right above the vineyard. And I was like, okay, there's like a dozen and then they're still coming and they're still coming. <laughs> they're still coming. And I was like trying to count. I lost count around 50, just like yeah. an enormous amount of quail, <laughs> just like a constant stream. It was like comical at a certain point. And no, then you guys have, you guys have like deer living in the vineyard. You pretty much gave over your Merlot block that year to uh, feed the feed a couple deer that <laughs> had decided yeah, they liked it a lot there exactly yeah we have all kinds of wildlife but yeah deer have been uh, sort of our biggest issue so yeah the merlot for 2020 and 20, 2021 i believe they ate at least 90 percent of our merlot uh, which is incredibly frustrating and about half of our syrah which is a real shame there because uh i love our syrah and i had i wish i had uh, more of it but uh yeah your syrah is great yeah um Remnants are really hungry, you know, so uh, that's they some for some reason they do prefer uh, great, you know, Merlot leaves <laughs> and fruit. Um, so they, they become a quite a pest, honestly, unfortunately, because they've, they've damaged even vines, uh, broken a number of canes and uh, almost killed some vines just uh, from their hungry eating habits so we've uh this this year we did a big push with uh, the deer fencing we, we had a we have a fence all around but the top wires were not on for uh, a big section gotcha. of it so uh yeah hopefully that's going to take care of it um a gentle approach is just to uh, make him eight feet eight foot fences right right 
yeah. Uh, clearly, they haven't seen Sideways, or they might not be as interested in your Merlot. Um, <laughs> I do love the Merlot though, for my uh, red Bordeaux blend for the hillside. So <laughs> that's going to take yes. a toll. <laughs> um, it's funny. I you you might know this. Uh, you've seen Sideways. I take it right. Yes, a while ago. It's so like one of the ir- ironies of that, where literally like a year after that movie came out. I think Merlot's sales tanked like 40% um, in America, basically. And I mean, it was this huge repercussion. I mean, like whole vineyards were ripped out because of that, that and whole many more vineyards of Pinot were planted. And um, the funny, I mean, the funny thing is like in that movie, the the character disparages Merlot, obviously, and disparages Cab Franc. And then that his Cheval Blanc is a 50-50 blend of Merlot and Cab Franc. So it's, <laughs> It's sort of like an irony of the movie to sort of underline that character's, you know, complexity and self-loathing and everything. Uh, but it was lost on the audiences and just devastated. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway. I like no, 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 but, yeah, it's a great point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so, so the other, one of the other, I think really cool aspects of your vineyard is the, the, people that you rely on uh one of the main guys that you rely on rico to to take care of it and do the day-to-day lives on the vineyard right he's got the highest house on the property exactly he literally has the best view in the whole property i believe from his house i'm a little jealous sometimes he has a nice deck that they built uh with an amazing view so yeah ricardo's been with us uh he's lived on the property for 20 years um so he's farmed that land um you know for decades so um he's an absolute instrumental in everything that happens there uh, from farming to the winemaking so he he does literally 90 percent um of the labor uh in the sense you know he manages uh sometimes other guys in the vineyard as well when we do need extra help but also um on, in the cellar he's kind of my right hand uh, when we're doing rackings during bottling so he's involved in pretty much the whole process um, yeah and and i mean we've already described it's it's a lot of hand work i mean there's you know th- this is a hand tended large you know i mean mid you know 10 acres hand tended is no joke no joke um, yeah so we do everything you know so of course um like every vineyard we do our pruning so he's he prunes at least half the vine so it's usually him and octavia that do all the pruning so it's two people doing 10 to 12 acres so we'll start January 3rd this year and we'll go on almost until bud break. Um, so they're definitely you know, spending a lot of days out there. And then after that, we have to go through and pick up all the prunings because, yeah, we don't have a tractor to, you know, we, we're not disking all our prunings into the, into the ground. So we have to take all our prunings out um, all by hand, all the compost our fertilization programs, mainly compost. So we, Put that out by hand so this year we just finished uh putting out 24 tons of compost uh him and octavia did a wonderful job and the year before that <laughs> it was 25 or 24 tons of gypsum um, wow so okay yeah i'm sorry that was a, it sounded like a good segue to ask about why are you putting so much gypsum in in your vineyard so yeah, I mean, I think it's a topic. I, I believe I brought it up when you're uh, at the prop uh, visiting us at the property that we do have a fair amount of serpentine soils, 
uh, up at uh, Alta Orsa, which uh, makes it even more challenging because we didn't have enough <laughs> challenges as it was. Uh, so w- t- describe those soils for anybody who doesn't isn't familiar with w- what that means. So yeah, serpentine soils, it's a particular soil type. Um, basically, it's a metamorphic rock. Uh, so ro- rocks that were basically pushed up from sort of the seabed, um, through the tectonic plates or the continental plates kind of crashing. And um, they, but the basic issue, I guess, going back to it is that the the content, they have a really high content of magnesium. Um, So it really throws everything out of balance. So like most plants, uh, they need uh, a balance between calcium and magnesium for cation exchange to take, you know, micronutrients and macronutrients. Mm-hmm. And serpentine soils just have an inordinate amount of magnesium. So we cannot put enough gypsum out to balance out that magnesium. So all plants are always struggling. And the with gypsum that is issue. the source of calcium or, or it helps exactly. provide a wave. Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah. so it helps uh, alleviate or bring the ratio a little bit more into balance. Um, got so, it. yeah, we, we just can't add enough, you know, gypsum. We did like I mentioned, 24 tons. Um, and that was, you know, I'll probably have to do it. I didn't do it in all the blocks because we were doing about five tons per acre. Um, so okay. it was just in, in sort of the easier blocks that we, we could get to. Wow. Because wow. it is, it. Uh, we have to do it all without machinery. Right. So it's Shoveling all, it around with a wheelbarrow. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. And as you can imagine with the topography, it makes it even more challenging. Um, <laughs> it's not... It's not on a flat surface, so wheelbarrow, you know, 100 pounds uh, on a 30 degree slope, that's not always the the best idea. Wow. So how old are the vines that are are the mature vines in the vineyard? They're they're Yeah, most of them are uh, are a little bit over 30 years old. Uh, So most of them were planted in the late 80s. uh, uh, I I think the youngest are probably about 25. So 35 to 25 years old. And and do do these poor soils or the, you know, I don't call them poor soils. Do these challenging soils lead to decreased vine vigor or vine health? I mean, does that cause other issues down the line as the vines grow and mature or, or do the vines sort of find, you know, have you found that the older ones have just sort of found their own equilibrium over time and are doing just well, just fine. So uh, I would describe them as poor soils. I think you're right. Adam. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the challenges with uh, serpentine soils is that because they are so challenging for uh, plant life, um, they haven't built up much organic matter over the years. So they can't be it. categorized yeah. as poor soils. So they're very rocky. Um, they don't have a lot of clay. So just the, you know, the, there's minimal organic matter, maybe, you know, 12 inches at most uh, and Below that, it's a lot of uh, shale and sandstone as well, kind of mixed in with the serpentine. So it definitely has created issues over time where it creates, you know, it's such a tough environment for the vine. So they have, there is decreased vigor. We never really have to fight with overly vigorous vines, you know, aside from maybe end rows once in a while. But um, the challenges for us is always bringing vigor back into the vineyard. So that's always what I'm thinking about. Um, right. And then also water, you know, water um, retention on these very rocky, poor soils uh, is very challenging. So 
one of the big things that I thought was so smart of the Topels was practicing what we now, you know, call regenerative farming in the sense of no tilling, um, adding compost and, you know, starting this 30 years ago to really start building up the soil. So our land, partly because, you know, there's, we can't fit a tractor, but also the way, you know, things were planted and, and the Topels philosophy, it's never been tilled uh, in the 30 years that uh, the vineyard's been there. So that has allowed us to build up some decent soils um, that are still challenging and we have to continue those practices. But uh, at least it's, it's, I think the organic matter are at at acceptable levels now. Yeah, that that is fantastic. Um, What what else is being done? I mean, when you talk about the regenerative way that it's been farmed, other than the the no-till and all the compost and <laughs> things that you were doing. What, anything else in particular that you guys employ? So of course, cover cropping. Uh, I've been doing a lot of experiments with cover cropping to see kind of what works best. Um, it does make it yeah. a little bit challenging because some, depending on what we use, then it makes it really hard to mow. So my big next step, I believe it might be bringing in livestock. So I would love to bring in sheep because we also spend an enormous amount of time mowing our vineyard. Um, yeah. and as you again, can imagine. With, <laughs> with difficulty, I imagine. <laughs> with difficulty because of slopes, because of, uh, you know, it's just la- really labor intensive. Um, yeah. You know, before they used to just weed whack about 10 acres. So it literally took all summer long um, <laughs> it, for three people to do it. Wow. So I've been able to improve, make small improvements. I bring in a, a tract um, called a, a flail mower, basically with mm. a 24 inch, 24 inch cutting radius to help us mow sort of the flatter blocks that we can get this little piece of machinery. It's, you know, it looks like a big lawnmower, um, but can also sure, chip yeah. some of the, uh, some of the canes. So making small improvements like that to really keep everything in the vineyard, try not to remove any kind of organic matter. Yeah. I'm, but, I mean, I can, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. yeah no. So that, that's, you know, those are, I guess not, that's not necessarily a regenerative practice, um, but just well, trying I mean, to, you know, yeah. yeah, it's all part of it. I think, I mean, you're, you're, you're creating a, you're mowing and creating a, a, a like a, a grass mulch or whatever, a, like a, just a normal organic mulch from that. Exactly. Letting it lay. I can but, definitely envision sheep there. I mean, it would be just the the icing on the cake, honestly. Um, yeah. No, I've really wanted to do it. I, I started looking into it last year. Uh, so I contacted KOS, which um, they're out of Lake County, and they are doing some amazing work. Unfortunately, I think because of our location and our the size of our vineyard, um, we're too small really for kind of their operation. Uh, uh, and, uh, I did find someone else that was willing to do it, but the cost, unfortunately it was, it was cost prohibitive. It was around $1,200 an acre. Um, ooh, and to do ooh. that every year, it just it didn't, you know, <laughs> maybe, maybe, um, it's time to become a shepherd. Martin. I think it is, you know, after hearing <laughs> your podcast, the one with, uh, with Nathan from Tablas Creek, I, yeah. I really, I was inspired. So uh, I mean, I am in contact with someone right now that may help us bring in a herd uh, in-house nice. just because it might be the best solution. Um, yeah. I'm sure that's, yeah, that's another cool. set of challenges, but uh, I think it would solve a big, 
you know, issue for us, it was just labor during the summer. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's right. I mean, you'd only need one person who wouldn't have to work quite as hard. They'd just be sort of moving the sheep a little, you know, every other, every couple of days. Exactly. I mean, I think if Ricardo, uh, instead of mowing, <laughs> just spent time moving the sheep, it would be a lot more effective and, you know, we wouldn't be burning so much fuel. Um, right. mowing the whole little, vineyard so um yeah I think a little it could less be work a little less work for him right, right. <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's nice so uh, i mean we you know given all of these things what are some of the i, I mean i can, can say from my own experience that what i what i saw because of like the decreased vigor and the poor soils that you know the extreme drainage and lack of water retention you end up with these really concentrated tiny buried clusters uh from what i remember and Mm -hmm. i mean i definitely taste that in the wines do you can you talk a little bit about that and you know other some of the maybe it's a a a negative of the site that actually turns into a positive in the wine absolutely i mean i think that a lot of things we've mentioned you know sound like negatives like the spacing but everything at the end of the day uh I think of it as a positive, you know, at first it seemed like quite a challenge, but then after farming the land, you really get to see the positives and all these things that all all these challenges, right? So um, yeah, reduced vigor means we usually don't have to leave. We have enough light penetration uh, and we're such a windy site. We don't really have a lot of kind of disease pressure in general. Uh, concentration, we're never, you know, I don't have to bleed any of my uh, fermentations to get concentration because like you mentioned, we have these tiny little berries, um, you know, really tough, beautiful skin um, that has great, great color and tannin structure. Yeah. So, and, and you know, yes, it's challenging because sometimes we get half a ton at most, two tons per acre. Um, So economically, it's not always... (laughs) fantastic uh or feasible but uh from a wine quality it is kind of an ideal site um so yeah wow did you say half a ton to half a ton to two tons is about your range exactly so i i think the most the most that i've seen is about two half two and a half tons but this year with the drought we had about average of half a ton per acre in all our blocks wow yeah that is extreme. It is extreme. Um, <laughs> it's not, like I mentioned, you know, it's farming. It's not economically feasible in years like 2021. Right. Yeah. Um, so there's definitely challenges in farming that land. Um, but, we, you know, we're fortunate that we farm for quality. So, uh, you know, it, it still makes some amazing wines. And it's good that we're not just growers because there's no way we could ever recoup, you know, the cost of farming has just grown, yeah. so we have to make it and sell it ourselves to sort of break even. <laughs> yeah, no, I, was, I mean, for real, like, I, I, it's, I think it's good for people to understand those realities. Like, I, I mean, I've seen some spreadsheets for wineries, uh, for vineyards in, in Santa Barbara, and it doesn't pencil out into the black until they're at three tons an acre. And, yeah. and so I, I imagine the math is pretty similar up there. Exactly. Um, and that's, you know, you know, part selling part, you know, part selling wine, part selling grapes. So, you know, if you're the only way to make less than that work, I think is what you're saying by doing it, selling, making, making the wine from that and selling the wine. And, and I think people need to understand that that's the, that's the cost that goes into 
a bottle when they're paying for it. Like otherwise you guys just couldn't exist. This, you know, magical gem of a vineyard would just go to waste because yeah, like it's, it, it, the, the economics wouldn't be there for it. It's uh yeah. Exactly. No, yeah, we have to sort of vertically integrate everything, um, you know, from the vineyard management. We we can't really outsource anything. We have to kind of bring everything in-house because we have to really control costs um, from the vine until we sell it. Um, But yeah, I think that that's a hugely important thing that people need to understand that farming, you know, organically and on special sites, it's, you know... a $30, $40 wine doesn't really, we're not making a killing. No one's making a ton of money here. Um, right. It's really just to cover cost of, um, you know, of our labor um, and yeah. production costs. And so what wines are you making? What do you, what do you have that people can try? Yeah. So, uh, you know, mo- we're always proudest of our estate wine. So uh, from our estate, we make, um, basically our reserve Cabernet um, that usually comes from two blocks. So we have block three and block one. So block three is right um, by the winery and block one um, is close to the winery. Both are kind of some of the oldest blocks, but they're also have more of a Southern and Eastern exposure. So they have beautiful, they get beautiful morning sun. They build a really great, um, you know, kind of tanning quality and a lot of color and really plush kind of mid palette and great structure. Um, so that's, you know, that's kind of our main uh, production. Then we make the hillside cuvee, which comes from the northern facing blocks, kind of the steep blocks against that face, uh, Duncan Peak. Mm. Um, that's mainly Cabernet. And, you know, like I mentioned, also some of them are logos into that blend. But those blocks are totally different, though, even though they're Cabernet, um, you know, stones throws away. Uh, yeah. They build a, a totally different profile. And then the Syrah, which is probably honestly my favorite wine that we make, but we just have very, very little bit. This, uh, this vintage, I think we had about 30 gallons. So, <laughs> whoa. Yeah. Wow. The DR8, like I mentioned, uh, a big <laughs> portion of it and the turkey. Um, I'm going to get a little angry at those deer pretty soon here. That's some good Syrah too. I, yeah. uh, I love that Syrah. Um, yeah, those deer need to be taught a lesson. Exactly. <laughs> well, no, I think the deer fencing thing's going to work. I, and I think we are okay. going to get a dog this year as well. So um, uh, hopefully. Nice. Well, that would help away. with the sheep. Exactly. That would help with the sheep. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It all starts to connect, right? You start building this kind of <laughs> ecosystem for it to work. Yeah. Well, um, I think that's a great word. I mean, I think that's the way, I mean, that's the way it appears. It it doesn't, It you your experience of going up that dirt road and then arriving at the gates, this old, you know, it has this old, like, it feels like an old Italian villa. Honestly, I think the architecture mm-hmm. is, is that styles, you know, whoever built the buildings originally and, and you have this stone gate and a stone and iron gate and you sort of, do you feel like a, it feels like it's very integrated into that mountain. Like it's built as part of yeah. that ecosystem and, and you see it everywhere. I'm joking about, hurting the deer but um you know (laughs) that's clearly their home (laughs) um but the yeah it's like home to so many things which is uh, i think really cool about it and and look i know i sound like i'm i'm totally promoting this uh, from ulterior motives but 
you know, honestly, we don't really have much of that wine left to sell. We're pretty much sold out. So it's not going to benefit me to make you guys look good in any <laughs> personal way. I just really think, you know, I'm as excited about it now as I was when I, when I first visited and discovered it and really think that it's unfortunate that you don't get the attention that I think you deserve. So I'm happy to sort of do what I can to, mm. to highlight some of the, the special aspects of this place. It's, you know, it's an honor to really be as kind of the stewards of these the, the land now, uh, this special property. And I'm really excited about the future. Um, you know, what it holds, we're going to continue improving farming. Um, and also I think on the winemaking, you know, we're making a fair amount of Cabernet now, and I hope to diversify our varietals, of course, I need to focus on what we're doing now. There's, you know, as you know, you can go in many directions. You can get excited very quickly with many things in the wine world. Um, but I think focus <laughs> right. uh, and then in farming, too. Yeah, yeah. So I think my goals in the next uh, two years, definitely, you know, bringing um, hopefully uh, some sheep into the vineyard um, and bringing potentially some more, um, you know, partner vineyards um, because, we do need to increase our production a little bit um, to make it a little bit more sustainable of a, of a winery, a business. Yeah, so you actually have the ability to pay yourself a salary and, exactly. and everyone else that works there. Um, it sounds like, and, and you guys aren't certified. It's not a certified organic vineyard or anything, uh, biodynamic or anything. If I'm not, correct. Not yet. So yeah, so I would love to be certified. Um, and I think that's another you know, possibility for this year. And we, I think we briefly mentioned, you know, talked about, yeah, we talked about it. You're doing uh, everything. Yeah. So we're being, you know, we farm completely organically. So, you know, since I've come in, um, let's see a fertilization program, we've just used, uh, or actually organic compost, uh, from Cold Creek, which is a great operation here in Mendocino Mm. County. And I tried fish emulsion as well, um, which mm-hmm. I loved. And I was really excited about until I found out that it can also clog your emitters um, uh. unless you flush it out. So it became, so I did use it, uh, was it last year? So you were like fertigating it? Fertigating it because I was, yeah, I yeah. can, you know, I wanted to fertigate. So I installed sort of an injection point in our irrigation system, which is, you know, it's a whole different topic, the irrigation. But <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, oh, God. Uh, so yeah, I, I did it. And then I talked to a friend. He's like, Oh yeah, I've heard that sometimes it can clog your irrigation. So you have to really flush it out after you use it. So of course I go and I opened, um, the end, uh, of one of the lines and yeah, it just kind of gets stuck there. So I was having to clear all my lines and maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but I, you know, it sounds a little risky. So kind of went back to just compost. So what uh, has been done really uh, on the property for the last 30 years, just bringing tons and tons of compost to continue building those soils. Um, but so yeah, our fertilization program is basically completely organic. Um, and then um, pesticides, the only thing that we really use, so they're all organic. So we use mainly uh, sulfur dust. Mm-hmm. Um, but this year after hearing once again one of your podcasts with uh steve matthias and um so i did start using uh stylet oil early in the season uh, for mildew and that allowed us to reduce basically uh our sulfur use to about three dustings per year um so that's all that's all i did this year was an early stylet 
uh, three sulfur deaths. And then uh, we tried some of the biologicals uh, sort of after, after that in the problem spots. So not the whole vineyard, but just uh, targeting, you know, where we know we have mildew issues uh, in the past. Got it, yeah. So yeah, we, we did a little bit of Sonata and... Um, Regalia? No, uh, Serenade. Uh, Serenade, oh, okay. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I, yeah, we sounds like us here in South Central, we do. We start with Stylet, then move to Sulfur for about three sprays, like you said, and then move to Cinerate, sort of finish on Cinerate. So we, you know getting the sulfur out of the vineyard before, you know, as far from harvest as possible. Exactly. Um, yeah. And, yeah. and you are sourcing from some other places for some of your other wines, but the, like the, and that's you, how, I mean, do you do that every year? You guys are currently. Yeah. So do, I, yeah. I did start sourcing from other vineyards partly because, you know, so we're, uh, we're in the Mencino County. So fairly warm climate. Um, it's best for Bordeaux varietals. And I've always loved uh, making Pinot and Chardonnay. So we made those, uh, you know, at Crossburn and Paul Hobbs. Wanted yeah. to continue that tradition. Um, you know, I've always been really excited about making Pinot. I've always really enjoyed making Pinot. So we started sourcing from uh, what I call a heritage vineyard. So, you know, vineyards that have been farming, their, you know, farmers that have been in their land for a long time. So I partnered with uh, with Hafner Vineyard, so my in-laws, <laughs> for uh, Chardonnay. Nice. Uh, I know they're grape growing. I know, you know, the vineyard very well. Um, yeah. It also helped me because I have a tiny little, you know, half ton press. So they, uh, they assist me with pressing my whites. Um, oh, sweet. Yeah. So that, that makes it a lot easier for me. Um, yeah. You know, it's, you know, I've always really enjoyed the Chardonnay, you know, beautiful minerality out of this property. Uh, it's kind of along this old, it's, so it's along Sausal Creek. Uh, it's a tributary of the Russian River. Um, very gravelly, loamy soil. So yeah, it's a great site for Chardonnay. And then uh, for uh, my Pinot Noir, I partnered with Slusser Vineyard. So the Slusser has been around in Sonoma County since the 1840s. And this particular oh, wow. vineyard, uh, is, I think it's 36-year-old 30, planting of Pinot Noir, all 115. You know, which uh, starting small, I, I couldn't really choose. You know, I can't source three different clones of Pinot Noir and I've always loved kind of the 115 as a standalone clone. Mm, yeah. And through a mutual friend, it became available uh, after a big, big winery kind of dropped all contracts in Sonoma County. Uh, and yeah, it became available. I was, you know, incredibly surprised to find this little gem. So I make a, a Pinot Noir and a, and a rosé from there. Nice. Yeah. I remember seeing that rosé and tasting it and loving yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> It is an amazing rosé. <laughs> um, well, great. I, I, so, what? Are, what are? How do people find out and try this stuff? Find out more. Yeah, you, I know absolutely. you guys uh, have some presences out there in the world. What? What are they? So, our presence. So, on our website, that's probably the best. You know, orsawines.com, uh, or you can always that's, email me, Martin at orsawines.com. That's O R S A wines. Exactly, O R S A wines. Um, or come visit us. Uh, so just give us a call and shoot me an email. Uh, I always love to, you know, show people the property because it, it, it's truly hard to understand our wines without having been to the winery and to the vineyard. Um, and I'm always happy to barrel taste, to walk through the vineyards. Um, you know, it's a real joy to share this, this special place with, with anyone and everyone wants to come. 
<laughs> I love that. Well, thanks so much, Martin. This has been great. I do, do you know, I love talking about this place and, and I think you do a great job there. I really love what you guys are doing. And, uh, you know, like I said, our wines are sold out almost and for a reason, uh, you know, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible stuff that's coming out, out of that little gem. Um, so I hope the same for you guys as well. <laughs> hope selling out is yeah. your destiny. <laughs> I hope so too. That would be a great destiny. And by the In way, the best I, sense. I, yeah, yeah I love not your, selling uh, out like selling your soul. <laughs> no, 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 not in that way. Selling out of the wine or about product. <laughs> yes. 